Take your Bible and turn to the book of Zechariah. The first half of this book has been largely taken up with Zechariah's sort of strange apocalyptic visions that he's then conveyed to the people. Visions depicting God's purposes of grace, God's purpose to dwell again with his people after 70 long years of exile in Babylon because of their own disobedience and rebellion. The people are now beginning to return to the land of Judah and and restore and renew and rebuild the lives they had there. Of course, chief among that rebuilding is, is the temple that lay in ruins. And they had begun the work and then got installed for some 20 years. And through the prophets Zechariah and Haggai, they, though the Lord began to encourage and strengthen the people for the work. Build the temple, renew the covenant. And so we saw all of these visions that depicted God's heart for his people and God's purpose is to judge those who had oppressed them and to give blessing and grace and to dwell with them in covenant faithfulness again. And now we have something of a transition between that sort of prophetic, apocalyptic, visual-driven message to a few more sort of what are called oracles, prophetic oracles that come in the last few chapters of the book. And what we have in chapters 7 and 8 is a little bit of a pivot point where now we start to see the temple is almost finished. The work has been going on and it's close to completion. And so now there's, uh, there's a message here from the Lord through the prophet Zechariah concerning the way that the people of God live together, the way that they should live in covenant faithfulness with him and with one another. And the big idea, the main idea that comes from these two chapters is that the gospel replaces mournful fasting with cheerful feasting. The gospel replaces mournful fasting with cheerful feasting. And we'll see that unfolded as we go. Zechariah has strengthened the people of Israel with visions and messages filled with God's promises to rebuild and restore the land. Work has restarted. And now about two years have passed since that night, the night visions that Zechariah received that we'd spent several weeks looking through. And you can see that two years have passed because verse 1 of chapter 7 says, in the fourth year of King Darius, in the ninth month, and the night that Zechariah received these visions, we're told back in chapter 1, verse 7, was on the 11th month of the second year of the reign of Darius. So we're almost two years now past that initial prophetic uh, utterance of Zechariah. And so the work has been going on, and it'll be another two years or so before the work is actually completed. But progress is being made. The building is ongoing. And so this, the whole scenario here, that these two chapters get set up with a question. Some men from Bethel are going to come to the priests and the prophets, probably Zechariah and Haggai, Uh, in Jerusalem and ask them an important question and then the rest of these two chapters are God's answer to this question let's read the first three verses together for the the setting of the stage if you will so some of the people from the town of Bethel uh, seeing the good work going on and feeling a sense of hope and renewal are curious should we continue the ritual fasts that we've been keeping during our season of exile. Let's look together at verses 1 through 3. 
In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Rejim Melech and their men to entreat the favor of Yahweh, saying to the priests of the house of Yahweh of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? Bethel is a town to the north of Jerusalem, about 12 miles. In the days of the divided kingdom of Judah and Israel, Bethel would have been in the northern kingdom. It appears that in the reshuffling of things and the rebuilding and restoring of life in the land, Bethel becomes included in the, the kingdom of Judah. But you have leaders from Bethel making this 12-mile journey, which in that day and in those traveling conditions was no small thing, to seek the favor of Yahweh. So their main purpose for going to Jerusalem was to meet with the priests who were leading in worship and organizing the temple and with the prophets who were, of course, God's mouthpiece to the people to seek his blessing and his favor. And they have a particular question on their mind. Now that the temple is undergoing reconstruction, now that the temple is it's close to being finished and we see all this progress happening, clearly it seems that the, the, the exile is behind us, that that season of mourning is, is, is gone. Should we continue this fast of mourning? And he references a, a fast in the fifth month, which seems to mean that there was a fast going on during those 70 years of exile in Babylon that commemorated the destruction of Jerusalem's temple when Nebuchadnezzar had sieged the city and destroyed it in 586 BC. And so they've been doing a fast on the fifth month in commemoration of the destruction of their temple. And it's a fast, of course, of, of mourning. It's a somber uh, occasion of, of remembering uh, the judgment of God upon their own idolatry and rebellion and disobedience and the sadness that came along with the loss of their place, the loss of their national identity, the exile, the scattering that they would experience in Babylon and beyond. But now things are looking up, right? Things are, seem to be making progress with the temple nearing completion. Do we need to continue this ritual fast of mourning? of grief because of the destruction of the temple, or should we maybe sort of move on? Seems to be a little bit behind this question. And Yahweh's response through Zechariah takes up the rest of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8, and it contains two elements, a warning and a promise. A warning and a promise. Chapter 7 is the warning. Chapter 8 is the promise. So we'll look at those uh, in turn. And we're going to try to get through all of these two chapters, so bear with me. A warning concerning the danger of empty religion. The danger of empty religion. Look with me at verse 4. We're going to read just verses 4 through 7. Then the word of Yahweh of hosts came to me, me being Zechariah. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that Yahweh proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? So he answers their question with a question which sounds a little bit like what Jesus tends to do when we read him in the Gospels. Someone asks him a sort of penetrating question, and he flips the tables on them and asks them a question of his own. 
Yahweh does essentially the same, same thing. They say, should we continue fasting and mourning and, and grief for what was lost? And he asks them, well, have you really been mourning for my sake? When you're doing those fasts throughout this time of exile, has it really been for me? Have you really repented? I think it's kind of what he's getting at. Have you, have you really understood the purpose of this season of exile? Do you really understand that the destruction that came to the temple in Jerusalem and the scattering that came was because of the people's disobedience and unfaithfulness and idolatry? Do you really get it? Seems to be what God is asking here. Was it for me that you fasted? Were you mourning the loss of my favor? The, the, the blessing of my presence? Is that really what you've been mourning? So he's, he's driving at the heart and the motives even behind their fasting. And then he gives, he begins to give a warning about how the previous generation had not responded faithfully to the word of God. They had abandoned the covenant. They had abandoned his word. They had stopped listening to him. And so he begins a, a lengthy a sort of painting a negative example uh, from the, the previous generation. And he mentions here that uh, this, were not these the words that Yahweh proclaimed by the former prophets, right? When Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous. So back in those days before the exile, when everything was good and everybody was all together, I warned you. I sent the prophets like Jeremiah to say, hey, if we don't clean up, if we don't follow the covenant, if we don't start worshiping God as he calls us to worship him, judgment and, and exile are coming. And indeed, they would not listen. And he speaks to them again of, of the, the motivation behind fasting. And so there's a danger of a false fast, a false fast. And he starts to kind of explain some of this. As we go, you see that the former generation had been guilty of this false fasting. That is, they were keeping up with the, the rituals and the rhythms of worship as prescribed in God's law, at least in some ways. But they were failing to live obedient lives and repenting of their sins. There was wickedness and injustice among their even society and their cities and the way they related to one another and certainly in the way they related to God. And so even though they were fasting, they were carrying out these rituals, the, the heart of it was missing. I want to take you for a moment to the book of Isaiah. One of these clear prophecies, uh, instructions and warnings from God concerning uh, the false feast, or false, excuse me, false fasting that the people had been guilty of. In Isaiah chapter 58, God tells Isaiah to speak to the people. Again, this is before the exile. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. So here we go. So this is God's indictment of the people of Israel in that day, that former generation. Isaiah 58, verse 2, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Okay, so they're doing the right things. They're saying the right things. It looks like they really want God's blessing. They're, they delight to do what God says, as though they were a nation who did righteousness, even almost kind of sarcastically turning the, the, the table there. You, you aren't a righteous nation. Verse 3, he says, he kind of quotes them. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? 
So this was the attitude of the people. We've been doing the right things, God. Why haven't you blessed us, right? Why haven't you showed up? Why haven't you delivered us from our troubles? He says, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? So listen, you've got the, you've got the rituals down. You guys are doing all the, from the outside looking in, man, look, I mean, they've got the sackcloth, right? They've got their tear in their clothes. They're covering their head with ashes. They're, they're publicly crying aloud and mourning. They're calling on God, right? Wow, this looks like a really good religious practice. But they're not righteous. They're not obedient. They're oppressing their own people. There's injustice that they're perpetrating among the nation. You aren't following me. And yet you call out for my blessing. The people fervently seek God, you know, performing fasts and wondering why God isn't responding and delivering them from his troubles. And he says, because your fasting is a mockery. You ask righteous judgments of me while you withhold justice from your own. Well, so what is he looking for? It's a fair question. What kind of fast does he want? What do you want from your people? Well, in the very next verses in Isaiah 58, he answers. He he tells them the kind of fast in which he delights. Look at verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 58. Is not this the fast that I choose? And here's what he prefers over their perfect rituals with a heart that's far from him and with injustice among them. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? You turn your back on your own kinsmen, your own people, those who are in the covenant with you and you turn a blind eye to their suffering. And indeed, you perpetrate their suffering by oppressing your workers, as he had already said to them. So the kind of fast he's looking for is a fast of repentance. It's a fast where the people are returning their hearts to the ways of God, not merely doing lip service to God and sort of asking for his help and his blessing while they're living in ways that are wildly out of step with his covenant and with his commands and with his word. So the kind of fast he delights in is when the people are in their hearts returning to him and seeking obedience and seeking to bless those among them. Well, let's see if his answer in Zechariah 7 sounds at all similar to this, right? Because he's sort of asked the question rhetorically, uh, were you really mourning for me, right? When you fast, was was it not for yourselves? And so he begins to answer that question in verses 8 
through 14. Let's look at these verses, and I want you to see if you can tell some similarities between Zechariah's words here and Isaiah's message to the former generation that we just read in Isaiah 58. So this is Zechariah 7, beginning of verse 8. And the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they, I think again speaking of that previous generation, they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that Yahweh of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from Yahweh of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says Yahweh of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. So the past generation is a negative example to the people in Zechariah's day. They drew near to me in ritual and religious observance, but their hearts did not belong to me, and their lives did not reflect me. God has no patience for empty religious observance. He's not interested. In fact, he's not just disinterested, he despises it. He has said elsewhere through some of the other prophets that he detests the new moons and the Sabbaths and the festivals of the people because they worship him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Theirs was merely empty religion, and it landed them in Babylon, scattered among the nations that they had not known. So the fast that he requires, the fast that he chooses, includes righteousness and justice among his people, right? He wants his people to look like him. He wants the life of the community of faith to resemble the heart and character of God. Just as God is the defender of the weak and a father to the fatherless and takes up the cause of the widow and the oppressed, so should his people be. His people should care about the suffering of the people around them, and especially among them. That's one of the things to note here is that he's talking to Israelites about how they treat other Israelites. You are allowing and perpetrating the, the, the suffering and pain of your own people. So the message to the people of God today, to the church of Jesus Christ, is pay attention to those in your own body who are suffering who are weak, who are oppressed. Jesus said something very similar to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23, for example, where he chastised them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you tithe uh, uh, dill and, and mint and cumin, uh, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says you should have done these things without neglecting the weightier matters, right? You should have done all of these things. He's not saying I'm against the tithe, I'm against the religious observance. What he's saying is the religious observance has to be paired 
with lives and hearts of faithfulness and obedience, of justice and of mercy. How might we be guilty of this same kind of hypocrisy? Where might we be in danger of going through religious motions, going to church, singing the songs, even tithing our money with hearts and lives that are closed off to God and his ways? Are we mindful of the needs of those around us? Are we generous with our resources of money and time, looking for ways to serve others? Or are we ignoring the suffering of the poor and oppressed under our own noses? Are we all the while smiling and singing songs of worship and praise? God, thank you for blessing us while we neglect the suffering and the oppression of those around us. May we heed this warning against empty religion. It was a danger for the people of Israel in this day, in that day, and it's a danger for the church of Jesus now. It's very easy to get caught up in the trappings and live the good Christian life so that people looking in go, wow, what a, what a great life, what a great church, what a great guy, what a great gal. They're so kind, they're so patient, whatever. But meanwhile, our hearts are far from God. Meanwhile, we're harboring sin and bitterness and unforgiveness and addictions that nobody knows about. Meanwhile, we're neglecting the suffering of people around us that we could serve, that we could help. May we soften our hearts before him, repent of our sins, and seek his strength to live faithful, holy lives that befit our calling as his people. Well, having sounded this warning against empty religion to the people. Yahweh now launches into a beautiful, sustained portrait of his good purposes for them in chapter 8. He offers them a promise, the blessing of covenant obedience. The blessing of covenant obedience. The danger was empty religion. The blessing is covenant obedience. Read this in a, a couple of chunks and and talk it through this is uh, chapter 8 verses 1 through 8 the word of Yahweh of hosts came saying thus says Yahweh of hosts I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy and I am jealous for her with great wrath thus says Yahweh I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of Yahweh of hosts the holy mountain. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares Yahweh of hosts. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. What a word of blessing and peace after the strong warning that he had just given. He begins by saying, I I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy and with great wrath. 
I think the wrath at this point is directed not against the, the people of Israel, but, but against Babylon and against the nations who have oppressed them. We saw that very clearly in, uh, in the first vision that uh, Zechariah reported back in chapter 1. God's wrath is turned against the nations who oppress them because his heart for his people is jealous. That is, he is fiercely loyal. He is committed to protect and bless them. These are my people. Mess with them, you mess with me, is the image. And I want you to note, he says in verse 3, I have returned to Zion. Notice the tense there. I have returned to Zion. This book began in chapter 1, verse 3, with an invitation where God said to the people, return to me and I will return to you. Well, now in chapter 8, verse 3, I have returned to Zion. He's here. He's back. He's dwelling with his people again. Now it is a done deal. It is the new reality in which they live. And here's what the renewed presence of Yahweh with his covenant people will look like. Men and women growing old in Jerusalem. Hasn't been a lot of old age in Jerusalem because of all of the violence and because of all of the, uh, the, the oppression that had come upon them. There's going to be peace. Men and women will grow old. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls at play. The sound of life and laughter. They're safe. They're at peace. They're growing. And the Lord himself is in their midst. Doesn't this sound like the kind of city you want to live in? This is the blessing of God upon his people. This is what he promises is coming for Jerusalem. He continues in, verses, in verse 9. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets, who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of Yahweh of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. So he's reminding them, you've got prophets who are living and ministering among you and speaking my word who saw the foundation of the temple being laid. They've been here. From the beginning of this work, they will strengthen you. Listen to them. And so he urges them, let your hands be strong. Continuing in verse 10. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. I think you get a sense of sort of the Romans one, the Lord gave them over to their own unrighteousness and ungodliness. And so the violence and and enmity between the the citizens of Israel was just the outflow of their own sin, of their own malice toward each other. And so the way that it's been, there was no wage, right? I mean, there's been hard work and oppression and labor for no earning, right? So you've been oppressed, you've been in bondage. There was no safety from foe, right? You were always at risk of being uh, sieged and, and, and destroyed and taken over. Verse 11, but now, praise God, but now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares Yahweh of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce and the heavens shall give their dew. The world will work with you instead of against you. The earth will yield its fruit to you. The heavens will bring their rain. There is is fruitfulness and abundance. 
I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. You used to be a laughing stock of the nations. They used to look at you and go, wow, look, they had this great, powerful city and this great, beautiful temple and this great, rich palace. They were so strong. Where are you now, Jerusalem? Where are you now, Judah? Your temple is in ruins. Your people are slaves in Babylon. What a great country you've got. What a great God you have, right? They've been the mockery of the nations. And God says to them, as you have been a byword of cursing, as you've been a mockery among the nations, now you will be a blessing. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, you're going to show them, you're going to rule over them. He says, you're going to be a blessing. A blessing to the nations. That is still in the mind and heart of God, to bless the nations through his people. Fear not, but let your hands be strong, he says a second time in verse 9 and in verse 13. Let your hands be strong. Living as the people of God in covenant faithfulness will require strength. It will require endurance. Continuing in verse 14. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, that previous generation, and I did not relent, says Yahweh of hosts, so again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. Just as certainly as he brought judgment, he, in, he purposed to bring judgment and he brought it, so certainly will he bring blessing now that he has purposed to bring blessing. And so fear not. You have nothing to fear. The heart of Yahweh is toward you. These are the things that you shall do. And now we get some exhortations, right? So let's talk for a moment before we read this, this list. He's, he's given them the picture of what will be, right? I am returning. I have returned to Zion. There will be life and fullness and safety and peace in Jerusalem. Men and women will go old. Children will be playing in the streets. I will make you a blessing to the nations, right? This is going to be a beautiful thing. This is the reality of God's grace upon you. The fasts are turning to feasts. The seasons of sorrow and mourning where you remembered and the destruction of the temple and the loss of your identity, the departure of my glory from your midst. Guess what? We're replacing all of those with seasons of joy and feasting, with celebrations of blessing and abundance because that's what the gospel does. The gospel of God's grace turns mourning into joy. It takes desolation and brings abundance. Where there was hard, fallow ground, a garden sprouts. This is a promise. This is what God will do for his people. Therefore, that's the word in verse 16 that we should keep in mind. These are the things that you shall do. Because this is the reality, because I promised this blessing, here's what you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares Yahweh. 
And the word of Yahweh of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. This is what God will do. I am restoring you. I am bringing gladness where there's been sorrow and mourning. I am bringing fullness where there's been lack and desolation. And because of that, here is how you should live. Here is what I require of you. Speak the truth to one another. Render judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil against one another. Love no false oath. Be people of honesty and integrity who bless each other instead of fight against each other. You see, God is a just God and his people are to be a just people. The blessing of God's presence with his people is to be seen, experienced, and known in the way we carry out our lives together as his people and the ways we engage the brokenness in the world around us. We of all people should be people of truth. We will not lie. We will not spread lies. We will not promote and honor those who make a habit of lying. We are people of truth. We will judge others charitably, not assuming the worst of one another, but showing others the same grace and patient understanding we would like to be shown. We will not seek to advantage ourselves over others, but instead will actively consider and seek the good and blessing of one another. Romans tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. May the Spirit of God strengthen us to live in this way. May we reflect his just and righteous character in every dealing, in every conversation, in every thought. This is the kind of people he calls us to be. And I want you to notice there's a pattern of exhortation here that's instructive and indeed important for us to get right. First, God reassures his people of, his, of their place in his heart. He reminds them of the surety of his plans to bless them and restore them. And then he exhorts them to action. Be holy. Love truth and peace. Do justice. It's not the other way around. It's not be a just people and then maybe I'll bless you. It's, I am drawing near to you in blessing just out of sheer grace. In response to my grace, live lives of holiness, and justice, and righteousness. Obedience is not to be driven by the fear of losing our position as God's blessed, chosen people. He would tell the people of Israel, you do not obey me out of fear of losing your place. You obey me because you love me. You obey me because you have been abundantly blessed with grace and you live in response to that. Your obedience is to be driven by your confidence in his love for you and in your desire to honor and reflect him among the nations. That's how it should be with us as well. We are his people. He has redeemed us in Christ. Our sins are forgiven. We have the spirit of God indwelling us. These are not things that might be if we get our act together. These are realities of grace through Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us live according to our calling, our true 
identity. And he adds to the list of fasts. We've talked about the fast of the fifth month, and now he has the fourth and the fifth and the seventh and the tenth. All these things, these fasts you've carried out for mourning and sadness and remembering what was lost, we're going to replace all that with seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. And because that's the reality, because that's the promise, therefore, love, truth, and peace. The blessing of covenant obedience is that God draws near to his people in grace and he brings them peace. He makes peace with them. And as he makes peace, he calls us to live in obedience, to live as a just people. And we'll see and experience and know his fullness as he intends. Let's look at the last few verses of chapter 8. In these verses, God uh, restores the hope of Israel as they've had this season of mourning and probably even now uncertainty about what the future holds. Look at verse 20. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of Yahweh and to seek Yahweh of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek Yahweh of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is the picture that he gives to his people. You will be the envy of the nations, in a way. The nations will see, Yahweh is with you. We want to know him. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to where Yahweh is and draw near to him. Let's seek his favor and his blessing. Just as the men from Bethel had come at the beginning of chapter 7, seeking the favor of Yahweh. So people from all the cities and all the nations around the world, strong nations, will come to Jerusalem and say, we want the blessing of Yahweh. They can once again be the means of light and blessing to the whole world. Their past disobedience has not forfeited their place in God's redemptive plan to bless all the families of the earth through the seed of Abraham. And there, of course, we see a glimpse of that future, full, complete fulfillment when all the nations, people from every tribe and tongue and language of the earth, gather around the throne of God and the Lamb, singing His praises for his redemption. The same is true of us, friends. In Christ, your sin and failures do not disqualify you from receiving the fullness of his love and grace. You are in your Father's heart and his purpose is to bless you, redeem you, to make you a light to the world around you will not be thwarted. You are his. You are free. And you are safe. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Let's pray.